0: Today on EdgeFX.
1: This is not an individual problem. It's a problem that crosses public private lines, not just individual people controlling containers on their property or individual people not littering. It's a problem of decades of disinvestment in these neighborhoods that have created this high density of vacant buildings.
0: EdgeFX editor Rebecca Summer speaks with Don Beeler. Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of Tests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats. They discussed Beeler's current project, bringing together scholars, community organizations, and citizen scientists to investigate the mosquito ecology of the city of Baltimore.
2: Thank you so much for joining us on Edge Effects. I'd like to start by talking about how you became interested in issues of environmental justice, urban ecology, and public health. Your book, Pests in the City, was about public health implications of domestic pests
1: and pest control. How did your personal and intellectual interests bring you to that project? Pests in the City, um, under a different name, was my dissertation. And as I was finishing my master's and thinking about what I wanted to do for my dissertation, I considered continuing my master's, which was about lots of different kinds of animals in New York City's Central Park in the 19th century. I considered extending that to my dissertation, but I really wanted to do something that broadened my horizons more and incorporated more of the different interests I had kind of grown um, to be fascinated with over the years. And I identified three things that I was really interested in. One was housing and affordable housing and quality housing for people with low incomes. And just prior to grad school was working with an affordable housing agency that was trying to resist some of the housing so-called reforms that came in under Bill Clinton that were reducing affordable housing Uh, Of course, this is a trend that's been going on for decades, but Clinton put in place some really dramatic cutbacks to affordable housing, really neoliberal oriented um, cutbacks. And the organization I worked for right before I went to grad school was organizing tenants. I helped organize the first tenants rights conference in the state of Hawaii, which is where I was working. I'm really pleased to have done that, to have been involved with a really great group of people in Hawaii that were trying to fight for tenants' rights to affordable housing. And one of the things that really interested me when I was working in Hawaii was that a lot of the rhetoric about how bad affordable housing was that I think was was targeted at trying to get the government out of affordable housing was to say that it was really poor quality housing. But the reason why it was poor quality housing was that government had been disinvesting in it for decades. And I noted this contradiction and kind of saved it in the back of my mind for a while. And that was one of the big influences in in choosing that project about pests was that pests are one sign of disinvestment in housing. When you don't keep up housing, pests get in and then you try to use all these kind of stopgap measures, many of them involving really strong chemicals to try to get the pests out. So I was really interested in that dynamic and remembered it when I was thinking about my dissertation topic. So I'm I'm interested in high quality, affordable housing. And I'm also interested in animals, obviously, because my master's thesis was about animals. And I was also getting really interested in health. And a lot of that came from some influential folks at UW-Madison, Judy Walter-Levitt and, and Greg Mittman were a big influence in my early years of my dissertation. And I was starting to become really interested in health and interested in how the environment affected health. And at the intersection of these three topics, affordable housing, health, and animals is pests. <laughs> that's that's really how I came to the topic of pests.
2: So your research subjects, the four in your book, rats, bedbugs, flies, cockroaches, and now mosquitoes, are what many people would probably consider Gross for lack of a better word. Is part of your project to kind of change people's perceptions about urban wildlife? Why do you think people feel that way about it in the first place?
1: Well, I think there is a common cultural expectation that humans control the inside and the outside is is where we, we don't necessarily control and that our buildings are supposed to be sound and modern. And kind of not permeable to nature. And and when we bring nature in, it's supposed to be under these controlled conditions. So houseplants and our our domestic companions like cats and dogs, they're supposed to be controlled in certain ways when we bring them within our home. And the truth is that our homes are permeable um, and our homes themselves are part of nature. They go through processes of decay But I think people are very uncomfortable with the idea that their homes are part of nature and they decay and that they have holes in them. And I, I think that's a lot of what's going on in kind of a general sense. But in another sense, I think there's also a big stigma on all of these animals. And they've become associated over the years with poverty, as well as a kind of perception that people aren't taking care of their homes properly, and that's why they have these creatures in their homes. So that stigma that, oh, if you have those animals in your home, you must be doing something wrong. You're lazy. You're slovenly. You have poor garbage disposal practices. I think that's part of it as well, and that affects both the people who haven't experienced infestation perceiving those who do. And it also affects the people who do experience infestation in that they feel that stigma and they are very eager to shed that stigma and rid themselves of it. And so as an example of this, I spoke with a woman who is involved with a public housing project in Chicago, that had extreme conditions of infestation. And the folks there were just so ashamed of that. She talked about people who wouldn't invite family over for Thanksgiving because they didn't want them to see the cockroaches there. And she talked about a woman who went for a job interview and a cockroach climbed out of her purse during the job interview and the interviewer saw it and just being mortified by this. So I think the, the stigma that c- goes along with these creatures is a big part of it. And whether you have that stigma of other people, or if you're a person who's stigmatized yourself, I think it's a really important cultural factor.
2: The point in your book that you make that having pests infestation is not a private problem, but it's actually these larger social, economic, political problems or conditions is, is really important. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. In your recent work, you've been studying mosquito ecology in Baltimore, and I had the chance to join you and a research team this summer to survey housing and mosquito breeding conditions in one of Baltimore's neighborhoods. Could you talk a bit about who's involved in this project and what some of the
1: research goals are? Yeah, so I guess I can start by talking about how the project started. So I'm affiliated with the Baltimore Ecosystem Study, And through that, I met a couple of collaborators. Shannon Ledoux is um, an ecologist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies up in Millbrook, New York, and Paul Leesnam studies mosquitoes and and environmental engineering at College Park. And uh, I got to know them, did a little pilot project in Washington. And then um, through that project in Washington, we were really talking about how social and ecological processes feed into one another and how we might study interventions into that system. And since in DC, Paul's group who is studying mosquitoes in folks' backyards was handing out educational materials. And that's something that's done a lot in public health research and mosquito ecology research. You hand out these materials and you see whether people actually, homeowners and and property owners and renters, whether they actually implement some of the household scale interventions that you can do to reduce mosquitoes. And the whole time we kind of didn't expect that to be all that effective. It was somewhat effective, but I did interviews with the people whose backyards and front yards we studied and discovered that there was this definite sense of community and sense of ecology among these these people who are definitely non-experts in those issues about mosquitoes and how they related to all these other things. And so the idea with going to Baltimore was to see if we can kind of tap into that sense of, I guess I would call it a lay ecology. That's a term that's coming up in some geography circles, this idea that lay folk have their own ecological knowledge that they construct. And whether that tapping into that lay ecology would also lead to more interesting and robust interventions to help reduce mosquitoes. And I thought that it might also reveal more interesting things about human environment interactions in a city where the housing market has been declining for a long time. So when we were in D.C., we're in a kind of a boom housing market where in D.C., housing values are going up. There are very few vacant lots. In Baltimore, there's a very high density of vacant lots, especially in the neighborhoods that we eventually chose and we wanted to see how the environmental effects of those vacant lots and all the, the social processes surrounding those vacant lots um, might affect mosquito ecologies.
2: Great. So when you were saying you were talking to homeowners and residents and they were connecting the mosquito ecology to other processes going on, were those specifically related to public health or the housing market um, or all of the above?
1: Yeah, public health, the housing market, household technologies, and neighborhood change. Now, this is, again, in D.C., when we had our little pilot study, there were some neighborhoods that were gentrifying or had these mini building booms in them. For example, I remember a resident in one of the neighborhoods that is actually lower income, but there were was a vacant lot near her house. And there would always be these investors trying to do stuff there. But while that was going on, they would leave the construction debris that would result in like puddles that would breed mosquitoes. And so that was really interesting to me. And I remember in another lower income neighborhood that was gentrifying, which is pretty typical of DC's DC th- these days, there was another man who was a longtime resident who said, well, actually the environmental conditions. To my mind, seem to be improving as these, um, these newcomers are moving into the neighborhood. And I wasn't able to kind of tease out, well, is it because he, he attributed it to the actual the newcomers themselves that they were cleaning things up. I tend to think that it probably has to do with improved city services responding to these squeaky wheels who are moving into the neighborhood. Um, but we observed those kinds of interesting things where who is living in the neighborhood was related to these physical environmental conditions. And we were seeing it on the boom end in D.C. And in Baltimore, we were interested in well, what's happening when the housing market is is in a kind of downward spiral.
2: That's so interesting. So what are some of the preliminary findings in Baltimore?
1: Well, before I I answer that question directly, I think it's important to understand the really long history of the neighborhood change that's been going on in Baltimore. And we can take this back probably over 100 years in order to understand how Baltimore has been segregated by um, Black versus white residents for for just decades. But some of the processes, including redlining that began in the 1930s, urban renewal that began in the 1960s, and highway construction that also began in the 1960s have resulted in disinvestment, really massive disinvestment in certain neighborhoods, almost all of them African-American, primarily African-American neighborhoods in Baltimore. And so those processes of Social and political and economic change have at the same time been linked into processes of of ecological change. And what we see is the rise of vacant lots. The neighborhoods that we are working in include a couple of neighborhoods. That have the highest density of vacant lots in the city. We're looking at up to thirty percent, thirty to thirty-three percent vacancies in these in a couple of the neighborhoods, and that process is associated with the decline of property values. It, declining property values are both a cause and a consequence. Of the vacant lots, as property values decline, people are more inclined to abandon homes and not invest anymore in them. And that kind of more of a block or neighborhood scale, as you have more abandoned homes, then the, the value of adjacent properties goes down and people become more inclined to abandon those as well. And it's also gone from more of a homeowner-oriented neighborhood to more of a rental-oriented neighborhood. And while those processes are going on, the, the buildings themselves physically decay. Some of them actually fall apart. Some of them crumble. And then eventually the city will um, actually invest large amounts of money to knock them down and clear them out. That's where we get the actual vacant lots. But you also have a lot of houses that are still standing but completely gutted. Some of them, you have a facade on the front, but the back is open. And within that building, one of the processes that's led to greater infestation with mosquitoes, along with infestation of rats, is that there are just lots of little pockets that can collect standing water in there. And so we have mosquitoes, we believe, breeding inside of the the vacant buildings. But then another process that's going on is that small-time trash haulers are seeing this neighborhood as a place to dump garbage and save money on tipping fees and so we are aware that small-time trash haulers come in in the, the dark of night and uh will find a stretch of a few adjacent abandoned homes and dump garbage in the backyard and so that is another opportunity to, to create these little pockets that collect standing water and breed mosquitoes and I think our, our interviews, along with our sampling of mosquitoes, have revealed that when people see their neighborhood being treated as garbage, their garbage um, stewardship practices also kind of feed into that. So, so there is a fair amount of littering in that neighborhood, um, kind of on an individual basis. Along with really the abandonment of the neighborhood by city sanitation collections. And we have lots of evidence that sanitation does a very poor job in the neighborhood so that people put out their trash. And their garbage cans get stolen, so they put out their trash outside the garbage cans. Dogs rip into the garbage bags, and then you have more garbage strewn all over the place, more breeding spots for mosquitoes. So the the punchline here is, um, in terms of our results, is that the neighborhoods that have this history of disinvestment have up to three times as many Aedes albopictus mosquitoes as do the upper-income neighborhoods that don't have that history of disinvestment. I would say that's our most interesting preliminary result.
2: Fascinating. It seems like there's also a lot of moving parts here you're talking about. Small-scale sanitation workers or informal workers, the city services, individual behaviors. Is this all part of your research, or are these different research teams working together for a bigger project?
1: It's all one research team. It's an interesting arrangement. And I I have to say, I, I think it's worked out well, especially given that for many of us, it's our first really big project that involves this very multidisciplinary group. So we all contribute to using ecological techniques to sample the mosquitoes but that's that effort is kind of headed by a couple of the ecology labs that are involved in the project. And then we also have a lab at Rutgers run by Rebecca Jordan, and she is in charge of the citizen science portion of this. And so she has recruited both adults and youth to do these mosquito season long projects where they look for the first mosquito and they kind of report on that phenological issue of like, when does the first mosquito appear? And then throughout the summer, they have periodic reporting about where they find mosquitoes and roughly how many and so on. Myself and Jacobi Wilson, who's a scholar of environmental health and environmental justice, have worked on what's called PhotoVoice, where we give members of the community cameras and they go out and take pictures of things that they think are positive and negative in the environment of their neighborhoods. And then they come back and share those pictures. And we do focus groups around the pictures, talking about what those pictures mean for the neighborhood. We've done a lot of youth programming as well. We did a few summers of summer camp with different different youth organizations in the neighborhoods where we work, where we got kids involved in both monitoring mosquitoes and doing little kind of civic projects where they envisioned what would happen with the vacant lots and what would be a better way of using them. So we're all members of this big team and we've also got community partners as well that we work with in in Baltimore and in the neighborhoods.
2: So when I went out with your research team or part of the research team this summer, one thing I thought was really great was that it was you and also undergraduates and graduate students. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you incorporate this project into your teaching.
1: Yeah, so I started on this project and I I think it was twenty twelve. And in twenty thirteen I taught my environmental justice course for the first time and And that semester, we partnered with St. Luke's Episcopal Church, which is located in one of the neighborhoods. And we happened upon this partnership when one of my collaborators was putting a mosquito trap in the backyard of St. Luke's, where they do a lot of children's programming. And she met with the deacon of the church. And then the deacon introduced me to the youth program leader who does an after-school project there. And bringing this back to my teaching, my Environmental justice class partnered with the youth director at St. Luke's Episcopal. And we did, as I was describing this youth programming where the kids learned how to, um, learn how to monitor mosquitoes. They learned lots of things about mosquito physiology and mosquito ecology. And then we also talked about kind of civic environmental and environmental justice issues, like, questions of why do we have vacant lots and what should we do with them? So that's how it started with my teaching. But then that semester, I wanted to be able to extend that partnership with the director of the youth program, whose name is Helen Keith, who's a just amazing person. And she, in addition to doing the after-school program at St. Luke's, she was at the time doing a summer camp at St. Luke's. And so we arranged to have some students of mine do youth programming in her summer camp. And so I actually chose two students from my environmental justice class who had just made a really great connection with the kids and with Miss Helen at the church. And they continued into the summer working um, working with the camp and the kids there. So that was kind of how it started. And one of those students was John Henry Pittis, And when he finished his undergrad, he continued on with me and became the graduate assistant on the project and has just been a great asset. So in terms of my graduate teaching, John Pittus was one of the first people to kind of step into that role. He was a graduate assistant, and I felt like got a lot of really great training in uh, working with communities and also the theoretical literature on urban political ecology by working with community members. That first summer, he worked with the youth, but then he moved into working with adults. He was in charge of visiting community organizations and meeting with our community representatives that we paid a small stipend to help us with the project. I've also had a second graduate student working on the project um, named Joel Baker, and he has done some great work extending the Photo Voice project and getting people to talk about. Landscape And how it affects their engagement with community. So that's at the graduate level. And at the undergraduate level, as I've taught environmental justice, again, I've recruited students from that class to do some of our summer programming, as well as some of the ecological sampling. So In the years when I haven't taught the environmental justice class, I've recruited students from some of my other classes who gained some um, environmental health background. I've recruited them to help with the sampling. And I think this summer you met Kai Tran, you met Bridget Shobe and Jose Marquez, and they all helped with the ecological sampling as well as the housing survey that you were there for. And some of them have also done these individual projects. I've brought a couple of them to bigger national conferences to present the outcome of their work. I've been really, really happy to have had, I think it's been three summers now, when I've been able to bring undergrads who took my classes and did a really great job in my classes to, to bring them out and help them extend their investigations into Baltimore and to make them really good, community-engaged researchers.
2: It's such a cool project and a, a great opportunity for students. So now that you're working on mosquitoes, It's clearly relevant to more recent conversations that have been happening around the Zika virus and other mosquito-borne diseases. Was that part of the motivation for focusing on mosquitoes now? Or is it kind of a coincidence that your project is occurring as these public health conversations are happening more in the public realm?
1: Well, the, the Zika thing was a big surprise for us. And it certainly increased interest in the project in the past year or so. But there was nobody on the team who was kind of watching Zika as it appeared in the South Pacific and so on over the past couple of years and say, saying, oh, maybe it'll come to Baltimore. Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody anticipated the arrival of um, Zika in the Americas among our team. But back in 2011, 2012, when we were starting this work, we were definitely concerned about West Nile virus. And I think in in 2012, there was a really big year for West Nile virus. We are also thinking about kind of preparedness for climate change. And if Baltimore and Washington's climate becomes more like that of, the Carolinas or Georgia or thereabout, then we might have different mosquito ecologies, mosquitoes able to start their breeding season earlier on and building up a greater population during the year and, and maybe seeing more of um, these diseases that are born more by the 80s genus. So the, um, the chikungunya virus and, um, and dengue were some of the things that we were thinking about as we kind of connected climate change with the mosquito abundances that we were expecting to see and did ultimately see in Baltimore.
2: Interesting. Do you get the sense that other people, whether people involved in in housing or public health in the city or, or nationally, are also making those connections?
1: That's a really interesting question. So Baltimore has done very, very little the city of Baltimore, I should specify. It's different for Maryland and the Baltimore County surrounding the city of Baltimore. But Baltimore City has done very little to monitor or collect mosquitoes in the past several years. And we were really the only ones. Um, my team, as well as um, Shannon Ledoux, who's the lead investigator on our team, she had kind of a, a broader apparatus for collecting mosquito samples um, in and around Baltimore but we're really the only ones doing this for several years, such that um, this past summer, when Zika was starting to be a concern, the health department really looked to us mm-hmm. to understand even how to monitor mosquitoes and what the mosquito infestation conditions were in Baltimore. So um, they they became interested when Zika became a problem. But I would say prior to that, there was very limited interest. Now, uh, in 2012, there's certainly some interest because of the, um, the uh, West Nile virus outbreak, which hit several different cities across the country. But, um, but I'd say there, there wasn't a whole lot of work to monitor them before, um, before 2016.
2: Is there anything else that, that you want to say related to either your research that you're doing now or your book or the broader interests?
1: There's one other thing I would like to say about the results of our mosquito research, which I think is really important and really interesting. And that is that um, last summer, so in 2016, we wanted to do a kind of a, uh, an intervention experiment to see um, what types of sanitation work might help reduce mosquito numbers. And actually, before I say that, I want to, as an aside, we also did this intervention where we used some of our grant money to fund a few small neighborhood level organization projects to reclaim vacant lots and, and alleyways So we have been doing a couple of different kinds of interventions. So that was one intervention where we funded some community organizations to help revitalize vacant lots so that they became less of an attractant for like litter and and dumping and things like that. So that's one kind of intervention that we did. And and we've uh, yet to have a chance to monitor the results of of that on mosquitoes. Um, But last summer, we also did an intervention where we found two of the blocks that had the highest abundances of mosquitoes. And we removed the garbage on those lots. It was actually like maybe about 15 of us from the team, including the lead investigators and grad students and undergrads and some community members who were involved as well. We just all went out there and had a big dumpster that the city provided. And we went to two different blocks and took out as much garbage as we possibly could. And it was horrible. Um, it was it was like right at the end of July, and it was really hot and humid. <laughs> um, and and we did this, and our kind of working hypothesis was that we would see a reduction in mosquito adult mosquito abundances on these neighborhoods because we were taking away all these breeding containers that could fill up with water, with standing water, and become places where mosquitoes would breed. So um, it was it was really hard. It was a lot of logistical work. It was a lot of physical work. And the, the blocks definitely looked a lot better after we did it. But then our research technician, who's this great um, woman named Heather Goodman, who's um, just absolutely wonderful and has been out with um, my grad student, Joel Baker, um, monitoring adult mosquitoes along with our, um, our larval monitoring. Um, what, what Heather has found is that there was actually somewhat of an increase of adult mosquito abundances on those blocks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And now our explanation as to why our intervention didn't actually succeed is that these are also blocks that have really high densities of vacant buildings. Mm -hmm. And that, as I described before, there are all these kind of little pockets within the vacant buildings from them crumbling that can become also standing water holders and mosquito breeders. And I've kind of been saying all along, and I felt kind of rewarded, but also sad that it was the the vacant buildings are the problem. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And the the results of that intervention kind of confirmed to me (laughs) that the vacant buildings are the problem. And that brings it back to environmental justice for me. Because, well, most of the trash that we removed was like massive scale trash. It wasn't just like individual people littering. It was massive scale trash, really big piles of trash. Um, And that would be hard enough for community members to remove. We can't we couldn't really expect community members to remove that amount of garbage. But the case of the buildings is even more so. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. To deal with one of these buildings and possibly more into the millions. And so when you've got dozens of them and hundreds of them in a neighborhood, you're talking about something far beyond the capacity of individual people to control. And it goes back to kind of what you were saying about my, my book about, um, rats, flies, bedbugs, and cockroaches, that this is not an individual problem. It's kind of a problem that crosses public-private lines. It's not just individual people controlling containers on their property or individual people not littering. It's a problem of decades of disinvestment in these neighborhoods that have created this high density of vacant buildings. And actually, that's my my big takeaway message, is that in addition to being breeders for mosquitoes these vacant buildings are stressors in people's everyday lives and when we talk to the kids in these neighborhoods who are some of the people that we spend the most time with along with some of our more active adults um, who are involved with the project the vacant buildings they come back to the vacant abandoned buildings again and again that these are sources of stress for them they're sources of health problems for them And it's a problem that the people in the neighborhood cannot solve themselves. And we need the city of Baltimore and even better, the federal government to support doing something about these neighborhoods and giving people hope for a better environment in the future, not where it's gentrifying, but where people who've lived in these neighborhoods can enjoy the benefits of some investment that would make up for the disinvestment that was really racialized disinvestment over the course of decades.
2: Thank you so much. This has been really great to talk to you and hear more about this research.
1: Thanks, Becca. I really enjoyed it.
0: That was EdgeFX editor Rebecca Summer, in conversation with Don Beeler, Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She is the author of Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats, available from the University of Washington Press. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Rebecca Summer and me, Brian Hamilton. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back with new episodes next month. Ensure you won't miss them by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. As always, you can keep up with the steady flow of great content about environmental and cultural change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.